Whistleblowers from within the intelligence establishment have already laid out in exhaustive detail how the NSA is collecting all data flowing through the internet as we know it. Every phone call, every email, every web search, every file stored to the cloud, everything that passes from one computer or phone to another is being stored, cataloged, databased, and data mined to construct detailed profiles of ordinary citizens. But now that the 5G network is promising to deliver us not an internet of phones and computers, but an internet of things, from cars and watches to fridges and hats to milk jugs and floor tiles, when every manufactured object is broadcasting information about you and your activities to the world at large by default, and when it is discovered that opting out of this surveillance grid is not an option, the true nature of the 5G panopticon will finally begin to dawn on the public. But by that point, it will already be too late. Broadcasting from Brisbane, Australia, this is the FOMO Show. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. And this is a fortnightly podcast where we talk about the exciting ideas changing the world today and what might change the world tomorrow. We'll help you stay across what's going on so you don't get the fear of missing out. You can find us at FOMO.show or by searching for the FOMO Show on your platform of choice. Everything in the shows and the show notes, you can find links to the stuff we're talking about and timestamps to the relevant parts, so you can always skip ahead or find it later. So this episode, we're going to be talking about the trends in the internet space. So we've got a massive, massive report, which comes out once a year, that we're going to be digging into about all sorts of different digital trends and how they're affecting our world. Uh, we've got a few little bits in the news as well. Not as much news as we usually have, which is great, because... Um, I'm sure everyone's already probably read the news already, so yeah. So we're also going to be talking about Firefox Monitor, which is a great new tool uh, to find out whether your details have been breached on the internet. Yeah, and we're also checking in with Jordan Cronier, who's had some interesting news from, uh, from California. Cool, let's get into it. So what have you been up to this week, mate? Mate, I took my first holiday in a very long time. Um, and the worst thing is the first day, uh, so I took a week long holiday to visit uh, Melbourne, which is um, a city in Australia, which is very city like. Uh, yeah, it was nice. It was very cold. But um, yeah, just on while I was on my way to the flight, I got sick and I was sick all holiday. Oh. Yeah, and then my girlfriend caught the, uh, caught the flu as well off me. So, um, and she was ill for the second part of the holiday. So it was pretty pretty unsuccessful holiday, oh, really. But <laughs> I feel good now, and I'm going back to work tomorrow. So that is just like standard procedure. Oh, that's good. I mean, at least at least you you're feeling well in time to go back to work. Mate, that is exactly it. But to be fair, yeah. I love my job, so that's great. But, dude, the timing was awful. <laughs> Mate, what have you been up to? Um, I, I was actually trying to think about what I have been up to, really just being a dad, mate. That's that's mm-hmm. about it. Anyone that's had kids probably knows uh, the story. But I feel like my life has just become a very, I guess, boring life, just being a dad and then just working. Mate, that must be so fun being a dad, though. Like, it's not like, because I don't know what it's like to have a little piece of me and a piece of my partner, you know, just like a living <laughs> thing that like vomits and farts and all that stuff. Yeah. But is still cute and like a beautiful little thing. You sent me some pictures of uh, of your baby and, and so 
the, the widest, most curious eyes I've seen. <laughs> Such a cute baby. Yeah, she's she's awesome. I and mean, we're, we're absolutely stoked. And, yeah, like it, it is – it's really cool. It's a really, really cool adventure. And, yeah, she's very alert, uh, takes everything in, doesn't sleep much during the day because um, I think she's been – she gets FOMO as well. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, she really just wants to be a part of everything, which is, which is awesome. So – yeah, I haven't really been doing too much else, but it means that I can uh, spend time looking at cool things that I enjoy and as many late nights where I'm just essentially being a nurse and just uh, nursing her and so, you know, oh. you get some time to do, do some Mate, things. but you know what? You are in an incredible position. You are living in the future because you work from home. Yeah, I do, yeah, and it's, it is it is really good because it basically means that I can come into my study, uh, work here for a few hours, I can go out and check on her and my wife when I need to and we got a bit more freedom and yeah employees really really uh, accommodating with it and really happy and I look at it can be done so anyone that's looking to do it you can you can definitely make it work in any profession I mean I'm in law and that's typically pretty behind everything else yeah but, um, you can make it work and I, I honestly feel like I'm more productive this way than than going into an office, yeah, and yeah, and all that kind You're of stuff. You slash an hour a day by not commuting and all that. So Definitely, just get straight into the productivity. Your clients love it. Your boss loves it. Everyone wins. Everyone's happy. Sweet. Joe, is this podcast investment or any other type of advice? Matt, that is a great question. This podcast is not investment advice or any other type of advice. We're not saying that you should buy anything at all. Yeah, full disclosure, we're both personally invested in different shares, funds, and cryptocurrencies, some of which we talk about on this show. But if we talk about an investment product, it doesn't mean you should buy it. So do your own research, never invest more than you can afford to lose, and most of all, avoid the fear of missing out. So we have another giveaway this week. We're going to be giving away another Coin Storage Guru card. We had a lucky winner, Pav, last week. Yeah, he, he reached out to me on messages, and he... Won this copy of the Coin Storage Guru card. Looks really cool and it's already been delivered to him. So, yeah, really cool stuff. So, if basically there is this safe words kit the Coin Storage Guru put together, you put your um, seed phrase for your cryptocurrency wallets on three different cards. You put two thirds of your seed phrase on three different cards. And what that means is with any two cards, you can put together your full seed phrase, but with any one, you can't get anything. So what that means, you can give one to your lawyer, you bury one in a hole in your garden, and um, you keep one to yourself. And that means any two of those, you can put it together. So if you want to win that, you just uh, drop either Matt or Joe a message in Telegram, uh, say that you want it, and it's yours. If you're new around here and new to blockchain and cryptocurrency, you can check out our Blockchain Basics series. It starts from episode two and continues on until episode eight. It'll give you some grounding in the fundamentals and help you understand what, we're, what on earth we're talking about when we're talking about Bitcoin and any of these other random cryptocurrencies. All right, let's get into the news. And first and foremost, the, uh, the news of not the century, but definitely one of the biggest items this week in the cryptocurrency world is that Facebook have finally announced their new digital currency. Yeah, it's pretty interesting stuff. Now, there's a white paper out there. They've got a website. I think it's Libra, L-I-B-R-A dot org. Um, and what's the nutshell overview for it? Yeah, so basically this is a blockchain-based currency. Uh, it's backed by fiat assets. So it's backed by 
real world currencies essentially. Yeah, it's like a basket of currencies, like some yen, some US dollar, some I don't know British pounds, some other sort of things as well. Yeah, so they're going to essentially use that as a reserve and say, similar to how banks used to, like banks used to take in gold, and they used to say, we've got a certain amount of gold, so we can build, we can put out a certain amount of IOUs for that gold. So instead of lugging mm. around gold, you can lug around just their little bits of paper. Um, they're doing a similar thing with their uh, with their Libra. They're going to have this basket of assets, and then they're going to essentially have a currency out there which will be a stable coin. So a stable mm. coin's goal is essentially to be as stable as possible uh, with yeah. reference to an, another currency. So, for example, we have stable coins in crypto at the moment which are pegged to the US dollar and they mm. try and stay as close to the value of the US dollar as they possibly can. Now, there's a bit of controversy. If you want to um, host a node, so be one of the people that can sort of verify what's going on with this cryptocurrency, how much does that cost you? Yeah, that costs you only a cool $10 million for a seat at the table. And it's not only that, but you actually have to be approved by Facebook to become one of the nodes as well. So it's it's kind of like a double whammy. You've also you've got to trump up $10 million first, give that to the Libra Association, which is what Facebook's putting in place. Uh, and you've also got to be accepted by the Libra Association, again, uh, which is controlled by Facebook. And if you get if you meet those two things, you can be one of the validators on the network. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they um, they have a number of founding partners, which include Spotify, uh, Visa, eBay, PayPal, Uber, and Mastercard. So Visa and Mastercard, the two main card processing companies. Yeah, yeah. So they're all jumping into this, and um, yeah, look, it's it's it <laughs> it really seems more like um, like legacy banking that's been reskinned, but. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but their, their plan is to essentially push this out through Facebook and WhatsApp. So they've got a, a huge market reach already with Facebook, but then in a lot of the areas that Facebook doesn't have market penetration, WhatsApp has big market penetration because WhatsApp is used by a lot of people to send messages to each other without having to pay SMS costs. Yeah. Um, and WhatsApp was acquired by Facebook, was, was it like four or five years ago? Yeah. It was a while ago now. Yeah. 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 Um, but they say they're targeting the unbanked. So they want to get the, the, the general push with this is to try and be the bank for a number of people who don't have banks um, by using this Libra currency. Now, just for comparison, I guess, it's, it's, it'd be good to draw a comparison here. With Bitcoin, for example, currently the way Bitcoin works is that if you want to uh, be a, if you want to validate transactions on the blockchain, so if you if you want to actually host a full node, be able to receive and send transactions and see a full copy of the ledger, you can mm. just do that. You can literally just mm. go out, um, you download the Bitcoin Core wallet, and once it's downloaded the entire blockchain, you are a full validator on that network. So there's no mm. barrier to entry there. Whereas with Facebook, what they're doing is they're saying, you have to pay for the privilege and we have to approve you and then you're able to validate transactions and work Mm. out which transactions are good and which aren't. And that's rubbed people, including me, up the wrong way because it really just seems like our central banking system currently, which is Mm. you have to be an approved bank to be able to see copies of our quote-unquote ledger and Mm -hmm. validate transactions. If you're not approved by us, you don't get issued currency and you're not able to send and receive transactions at that mm. high level. Um, and it's real anathema to what crypto actually is. 
And they have mm. promised later on that they're going to disperse the power and uh, base that on the token holdings and they intend to become permissionless. Uh, but this is also coming from the most notorious data processor slash manager slash misuser in the world, I guess, in Facebook. So yeah. you've got to take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. Interestingly, they're, um, they're, they've developed their own programming language for the smart contracts interface that they want to have here. It's called a move um, and what I find really interesting is that Facebook run Messenger and WhatsApp, and you can build bots or um, sort of yeah a smart you know smart AI sort of interface Messenger interfaces for people. And um, what I reckon is going to be really interesting is how Facebook allow people to build this currency into their messaging interface and into all the integrations that there are with Facebook. You know, there's virtual reality stuff that Facebook will be doing, so you might end up paying to watch live Olympics or live football matches or whatever it would be mm. using Facebook's Libra. Mm. Yeah, and look, it, it, it does make a lot of sense. If they can get good market adoption on this, the possibilities are, are, are huge because Facebook and WhatsApp have so much integration already into so many different areas. I mean, you think about you go to sign up for most things and it, it sits right there. It says authenticate using your Facebook account, you know, and a lot of people will just click on that and there's a very well-trodden path there already for a number of different vendors who already integrate with Facebook products and mm. Facebook APIs. Mm. And so it'd be just as simple as flicking a switch and I can guarantee you Facebook are going to be running a number of promotions and they're going to be, trying to get people onto this however they can and make it as easy as possible. Mm. Um, and if they can do it, then the potential with having smart contracting languages on there and being able to deal with money at that level mm. is quite um, is quite big. And I think that's why a lot mm. of these big players are interested in it. It's worth noting that Facebook also run their marketplace. So they've got this massive buying and selling situation where it's almost like Gumtree, but all within Facebook. That's really, really interesting stuff. Mm, mm. But, yeah, look, I mean, this really just to me appears like a, a huge power play. Like I can see why banks would be worried about this because it's essentially tech companies looking at legacy banking and saying, well, you guys haven't been quick enough. Um, they've looked at crypto and said, oh, we like some of that, but not all that. But what, what they're trying to do, I think, is make a play to su supplant the legacy banking system. And essentially mm. say, we want to be the next generation of banks. Yeah. I found it really interesting that US lawmakers are actually calling for hearings on Facebook's cryptocurrency network um, and basically saying we should they should halt development until they can, you know, catch up <laughs> and understand what on earth is going on. Yeah, I, I, it's going to be really interesting, isn't it? Because you've essentially got the uh, the, the politicians and the lawmakers who, I mean, it's no real secret that they're very... Um, supportive of banks, they're very supportive of central banking, um, and they're they're on one side. And until this point, the tech companies were pretty happy to toe the line and play ball in a number of ways. But this is almost like it's almost going to be a showdown between the lawmakers and the tech companies, and probably the mm. lawmakers who are on the bank side versus the lawmakers who are on the tech company side. Mm. Mm. So it could turn out to be very very interesting. Yeah, in the cryptocurrency community, there's a lot of very, yeah, what would you call it? Uh, a, a lot of cynicism. Yeah. yeah, cynicism. Yeah. I think, and and yeah, look, cynicism. part of the problem is they were calling it a cryptocurrency and, and Andreas Angelopoulos, who's 
one of the you know early Bitcoin educators came out and said, look, it's it's not a crypto. It, what they're building isn't a cryptocurrency. It's a permission ledger um, that doesn't have the five. He's got five characteristics for what he char- characterizes as a cryptocurrency, um, and he says it doesn't meet any of those. So wow. that's something to look at into. There's also some very, very funny shenanigans on the Libra GitHub because Facebook have essentially come out with Libra and said, oh, it's going to be an open source project and we're eventually going to let a whole bunch of people contribute on it. And so a number of people took that to heart and went up on GitHub and, and, and started pushing, uh, putting requests in, which is what you generally do in an open source repository. You'll say, oh, I've got a way to improve the software. Here's my pull request. And if enough people approve that request, then it gets what we, they call merged into the project. Yeah. Um, and Gaz Hayes, who is uh, one of the developers on part of the Cardano software, went on there, went on there um, basically just after the project launched and said, uh, yeah. guys, I've got a great way to fix this. And he, he basically suggested a request which was taking all the Libra code out and just putting in the Bitcoin code. He said, you know, this will fix the permissioned problem. This will make it permissionless like you want. Because in their white paper, they said, you know, we, we really want to get this thing permissionless eventually. And uh, everyone was saying, oh, acknowledge, let's merge it, let's merge it. And Facebook eventually had to shut it down. But it really kind of demonstrated the fact that this isn't an open source project. It's Facebook's projects where they're trying to get crypto involved. They're trying to play in this space, but they're not really going along with the the ethos that has built the cryptocurrency space up to now, which has been mm. making everything open, open source money, money for the masses. Um, but all that to say, look, they'll, they'll roll it out and the majority of people are probably going to love it and it's probably going to take off. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we'll do a deeper dive in an episode or two when we've had time to look at the white paper and the technicals and everything else. Um, but for now, it's going to be something quite interesting to just, just watch and see what happens. Next piece of news, bigger than Russia, Bitcoin is now the eighth largest world currency. Now, at the time of writing, that was when Bitcoin was $8,940. US Now it's actually about $12,000. It's been a bit of a crazy ride. <laughs> um, Bitcoin is larger than Russia's monetary base. That means Bitcoin's the eighth largest currency in the world and the price keeps climbing. Yeah, so with $25 trillion debt, it's no surprise that despite being the world's largest economy, the US lags in fourth place behind Japan, China, and the Eurozone when it comes to base money, which I didn't even realize, Joe. That's, that's amazing that yeah. we're still viewing the US dollar as reserve currency um, when they're not even the largest in base money supply when you, when you factor in debt. Yeah, I didn't realize that Japan were number one there. Um, but yeah, I mean, and if like if you don't count gold and silver, Bitcoin's now the eighth largest currency in the world, uh, ninth place after you know the two precious metals, gold and silver. Mm. And it just keeps on climbing too. So yeah, random piece of news, but pretty pretty interesting. Mm. So next bit of news: Europol is going to be teaching cryptocurrency tracing to law enforcers with its exclusive game. Yeah, so Europol announced that it's developing a game that would help federal workers to learn to easily trace crypto movements to recognise illicit activities. So the the first of the kind game, uh, first of its kind game, being developed in partnership with their Centre for Excellence in Terrorism, Resilience, Intelligence, and Organised Crime, 
is set to be launched during their conference in October of this year. Uh, not only from the perspective of law enforcement, but also from that of the growth of the crypto industry, this so-called game is highly crucial to what they're trying to do. Uh, as cryptocurrencies gain adoption throughout the world, they're hoping to be able to track the money that runs through these cryptocurrencies and fight crime, as they say. Yeah, so that's the opinion of being crypto, which uh, who who published the news about this game. But yeah, basically they're saying you know it's actually a good thing. They were saying it's a good thing for the market. You know that it reassures people of the safety of their funds. You know that they're able to track these cryptocurrencies and you know therefore making it a bigger part of the economy. You know that the fact that we can track it and trace it and all mm. that fun stuff. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And look, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I've heard several people talk on this now about the fact that using crypto, like these open blockchains as, for organized crime is pretty silly because while you do get some pseudo anonymity when you're sending it to newly generated addresses and things like that, you can do pretty effective forensic research on these open blockchains and, and, and all the transactions are there for everyone to see. So once you've worked out your methodology... Um, it becomes quite easy for some of these experts to trace the money. Whereas if you use legacy banking or if you use something like Monero, uh, which which will put things through a tumbler and, and obfuscate the transactions, it's a lot harder to track the money as it passes through, passes through different hands. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, interesting to see that the that they're putting some serious money into to building up these techniques and hopefully they open source some of it so everyone can can have a look at it. Next piece of news, the Tesla Gigafactory 3, they're building up at an incredible speed, already installing production equipment. Now, we first covered this in episode 25, which is back in August 2018. Uh, And yeah, they're building this Gigafactory 3, their electric vehicle plant in Shanghai, at an incredible speed. It's the building is almost complete and the automaker is already installing production equipment. Yeah, so Gigafactory 3 is Telstra's first manufacturing facility in China and it's also the first electric vehicle fa- factory wholly owned by a foreign automaker in the country, which is quite big. And as the trade war between China and the US gets more and more complicated, Tesla are really trying to, to hedge their bets. They're trying to essentially have a presence in a number of different countries so that if there is a, some kind of trade war. China doesn't shut the doors to Tesla uh, because Tesla will have a genuine Chinese presence in the country. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they, they announced this deal about seven months ago with the Shanghai government to build this wholly owned uh, local factory. Um, yeah, and only about five months ago they secured the land for it, um, which is necessary. Then they broke ground in January and they plan to be done with building by this, this summer. Yeah, and look, there's some there's some drone videos that you can go and see, and we really recommend you go look at it. This place oh, is looks cool. absolutely huge. Like, mm. uh, it's amazing how big it is, and uh, you can just see the the crazy amounts of construction going on at the moment to 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 get this place up and operational. And uh, I, I reckon we should make no mistake that this is simply just this is just the the, the third Tesla Gigafactory, but I mean, this is only a an indication of what the future ones are going to look like i mean they're learning they're getting better and better you know musk elon musk actually said that they want to produce three thousand model three vehicles every week at this factory by the end of this year wow wow so yeah i mean 
Yeah, in in Fremont, California, they're they're trying to stabilize production at about seven thousand units a week. Um, so that's a total of ten thousand Model Three vehicles per week in total by the end of the year. Yeah, so they're they're definitely ramping up, and I mean, demand's just increasing and increasing for their cars. And uh, speaking of, there's a new car from Tesla, and apparently Musk has been saying that it may have six hundred twenty miles of range on the road. It's a thousand kilometers. Which is wild. Yeah, I mean that's that's more than a lot of people's petrol tanks. Yeah, I think my my SUV can go. Uh, it's a diesel, but it, I think it can only go about nine hundred and sixty kilometers before it completely runs out of diesel, mm. and that's a thousand kilometers. Yeah, yeah. So we'll put the link to the uh, the Roadster. I mean, it's not it's not out yet, but the announcements there. Um, it's all planned, and yeah, Musk is standing by this thousand kilometer total which is which is said repeatedly it can do and if it can that'll be huge because at the moment we're probably limited to what like half that yikes yeah yeah pretty insane so iran's also been heating up after this suspicious attack apparently on a japanese boat yeah that was kind of random so this happened a couple weeks ago you know some uh, some oil tankers were attacked in the Gulf of Oman and, you know, the the blame was put on Iran straight away. There's a bit of controversy around there. The Japanese were saying it wasn't actually, you know, some sort of Iranian attack. There. Well, it wasn't, you know, the so the Japanese disputed the official story that was given out by the, the mainstream media and they were saying that it was more they saw airplanes and things like that that were launching things, but... Essentially, it looks like there's a bit of a, a heading to war mentality here. Mm. Mm. Maybe we'll get the weapons of mass destruction again soon. Hey, mate. Oh, mate. Yeah, you got to watch out. They're, they're, yeah, they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Dying every corner. There was another country interesting... that has a lot of oil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate. There was another interesting piece of news that you, you heard in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, ago, yeah. So this um this this came out of. I think this just came out today at the time of recording. Um, Iran has actually seized about a thousand Bitcoin mining machines after there was a massive power spike because Iran's got um, state subsidized power and it's quite a good subsidy. And uh, so it's been quite a popular area for people to go and mine their Bitcoin. And yeah, Iran have just shut the door recently on that and started shutting these places down and, and saying they can't use the power anymore and seizing the Bitcoin mining machines and, I'm wondering whether it's Iran trying to ramp up its own state-level Bitcoin mining because you've seen this with Venezuela, you've seen this with a few other countries. Uh, as Bitcoin grows and grows and grows, and it, like we talked about before, it's what now the eighth or the ninth largest currency in the world, it may become more and more important for countries to have a, a reserve of Bitcoin, particularly if they're wanting to detach themselves from the US dollar and also avoid the sanctions that countries like Iran and Russia and Venezuela was another one um, that they've been under from the Western world. So it wouldn't surprise me if this is an effort by Iran to scale up their own state-level Bitcoin mining operations. Mm, yeah, mate, I'm keen to see what happens there. But, yeah, looks like we're heading towards some sort of a, some sort of a war, which should keep us very entertained, I'm sure. 
Hey, last piece of news, Samsung, they've begun their 6G wireless research centre. Right, so this is for the sixth generation of wireless. Yeah, so they, they've created this um, advanced communications research centre. You know, 6G, they're saying, will use machine learning for intelligent capacity and routing management. So that could yield speeds of up to one terabyte. Jeez. And so they're aiming to have integrate satellites for global coverage to provide far higher data rates and internet speeds than 5G. We'll keep a track of that anyway, as we as we have been with 5G. Yeah, hey, that's that's that for the news, I guess. Awesome. So wherever you're joining us from, it's a pleasure having you here. Yeah, why not jump into our Telegram channel and say hello? It's at fomo.show slash telegram. Feature. We do this feature every year. It's on the Internet Trends Report, which comes out. And uh, this is the 2019 edition. It doesn't feel that long since the 2018 edition. But yeah. you'll love this feature if you're interested to see where everything digital is going. So it drills right down into a number of different statistics, different metrics. There's a whole bunch of surprises in here. Um, we love this. We get really, really excited about doing this every year. So we're going to run through it. Now, it'll be impossible to run through everything in this episode because I think the PowerPoint's about, it's about 400 or 500 slides long, Joe. Yeah, 333 slides oh, of wonder. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's huge. Um, and mm. we'll put the link in the show note to the actual report because I'd recommend just going and if, if you've got a spare half an hour, an hour, sit down, have a look through it. Um, it'll change your life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll run through some here now and discuss it. And uh, yeah, let's jump in. Yeah. So every year, so this uh, Internet Trends Report is compiled by uh, Mary Meeker, who was she used to be a general partner at Kleiner Perkins. So this was always published every year by Kleiner Perkins Cordfield Buyers, or now it's called Kleiner Perkins, which is this massive venture capital firm. They've invested in Uber, Airbnb, all these big firms. Uh, Mary Meeker last year actually left and joined. Uh, and created a, fu- a fund called Bond Capital. So it's now published under there. Uh, and she presents it every year in a video. Um, however, yeah, you got to check out the slides. So, yeah, let's jump into it. So starting off, we're looking at some overall internet stats. Uh, first one is there are more people online than ever. More than half of humanity and rising is online. So 51% of the human population is online. Wow. Okay, and this is this probably makes sense why uh, Facebook are trying to do Libra now because there is a lot more market penetration. Um, now, adults are almost constantly online apparently and it's jumped up by another five percentage points. So three years ago, 21% of adults were basically online pretty much all the time. Um, now it's 26%. So it's mm-hmm. now a quarter of all adults are almost always online and on average they think there's about 6.3 hours uh, per day spent with digital media. So digital media usage is accelerating. It's gone up 7% this year versus 5% year on year. And and that's that's it's really interesting watching this is like 3.6 hours a day most United States users are spending on their mobile 2 hours on a desktop and 0.7 hours a day on other devices. Yeah, so that's altogether. That's what um, that's about six. Yeah, six point three hours a day spent on uh, digital media, which is crazy. unreal. Crazy. Yeah, and then mobile has actually overtaken television for time spent every day. So, 
Yeah, that's 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 gone up. So last year it was just slightly below TV, but television usage is dropping and mobile usage has continued to grow. So yeah, interesting yeah. interesting stat there. Yeah, so seventy two percent of video is still watched on TV. Um twenty eight percent is on mobiles though. And I wonder where the um because I mean for people like me, I watch most of my video on like a tablet or my desktop. Yeah. Um so I wonder where that factors in. But yeah, look, like that's We're finally seeing some crossover now uh, where for ages still television was the big, the big thing, even years and years and years after it had internet TV and Twitch and all that kind of stuff had really started to take off. But we're finally seeing now that um, TV is slowly being supplanted, which I think is going to have some incredibly interesting knock on effects as a number of these big television networks and, um, and, you know, traditional terrestrial television providers start to have less and less viewership. Mm, mm, mm. Well, there's there's been some other interesting stats. There's a cloud computing or cloud, as far as data storage goes, is actually overtaken both enterprise and con- consumer storage, which is pretty wild. So, yeah, almost... Uh, Almost 40%, maybe about 40% of data is now stored in the cloud. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. So it's 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 jumping up really quick. And it makes sense. I mean, you, you, even hearing from a number of the Linux guys, as they t- and they like a like number of the server guys, they talk about this a lot too. All of their conferences have become more and more and more about cloud. It's, mm. it, everyone is wanting to move things to the cloud. Everyone needs to integrate with cloud because uh, cloud is – the 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 architecture for cloud computing is just so much more convenient. Yeah, uh, it's accessible yeah. every and everywhere. It just makes sense, and it's amazing. Yeah, the power of what you can do once your stuff is in the cloud is really powerful, especially for enterprises. Mm. Um, being able to replicate your data really quickly, being able to access it from a bunch of places, like pretty cool stuff. Mm, and we also saw that uh, Google are working on their gaming cloud platform as well. Mm. I think we talked about that last episode or the episode before, but mm. they're looking at taking something that is very, very traditionally localized uh, and moving it into the cloud too. Mm. Mm. Online purchasing is growing again. So as a percentage of retail sales, e-commerce is almost at 16% of all um, all sales. Yeah. And the graph of this is actually really interesting because and uh, initially it was climbing kind of slower and mm. it, it tapered off a little bit around 2008, 2009, which was obviously the GFC. So um, there was some some pullback there. And then all of a sudden after the GFC, things have really ramped up and it's 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 growing almost exponentially. And, and, and you could probably expect this to, I don't know, you could probably expect to be at 25% in the next few years based yeah. on this graph. Because, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 double, it's more than doubled since the – since the financial crisis of 2008, uh, since 2012, it's doubled since 2012. So pretty wild. And I wonder what effect the um, because we're seeing these transport routes increase in um, in speed and functionality and and uh, like with things like delivery drones, for example, we're, we're starting mm. to see delivery drones rolled out in some select cities and. Uh, most places are able to get you something you buy online the next day or the day after if you're going to metropolitan areas. Mm. And, um, and, and in some places, even same day, like especially in like yeah. San Francisco and stuff like that. You know, And in, in some countries, they've got one-hour delivery as well, which is absolutely wow. wild. 
So why go to the shops? You know, I mean, unless you're buying clothes, I guess that's the one thing that a lot of people maybe still want to go to retail stores for. But we've covered Amazon's VR stuff before where they're looking at even attacking that and having it so that you can essentially scan in your body metrics and then try on clothes in VR so you can see what they look like on you. Mm. Um, at that point, why spend the time and the hassle going to a, a retail store when mm. you can stay at home and you just get it delivered to your home? Absolutely. Uh, really interesting seeing um, – so there was an interesting uh, – so so, the, so as part of this report, they compiled just a bunch of data from different sources. Um, there was an interesting one on transactions by payment channels. So they asked people, thinking of your last uh, 10 transactions, everyday transactions – how many were made in each of the following ways? So in-store transactions were about 41%, but really interesting to see 60% of the last 10 transactions that people made were digital. Wow. So you had other online stuff, buy buttons, uh, other mobile payments, peer-to-peer transfer of money, mobile messenger apps was about 7% of the last 10 transactions. You know, uh, Other in-app payments was 4%. Um, people were using QR codes to make payments was surprisingly 5%. Wow. 2% were using actually smart home devices to make purchases, so using so like their Alexa, Alexa to order. Yeah. Order yeah. me this. Mm. And interestingly, it's a small number now, but I expect this is going to grow massively as wearable or contactless payments using, you know, your your, your watch with an NFC built in. That was 2%, but we're going to see that grow, I reckon. Yeah, well, we saw that it was, it was probably Amazon again. Amazon seems to come up a lot in, in, in this, um, that Amazon are building those automated supermarkets where you can essentially just go in, take your stuff off the shelf, um, and then you literally just walk out. And it'll keep track of everything you've taken off the shelf, everything you have in your bag, and you'll just it'll just credit uh, debit your account when you walk out, and you won't Insane. even need to go to the checkout. Insane, yeah, yeah. And there are some really interesting payment apps which are shaking up the banking and payment industries. Um, Alipay from China is one of the big ones. Yeah, so they got uh, a billion users now, uh, which is about two times growth in the last in two years. Um, so, yeah, they've got this big ecosystem of, you know, commerce platforms, logistics and payment. So that supports their sort of digital transformation there. And that's pretty wild. Um, you've got in South Korea, there's TOS, which is this digital payments and financial services thing. They've grown two times in one year as well. Um, growth, you know, t- about 12 million users. Wow. There's also Revolut in Europe um, and their they're personalized banking. Um, they've grown two times in 10 months. Wow. Uh, so their their adoption curve is just massive. Yeah. I actually saw this random post the other day. It was somebody on, I don't know if it was Twitter where they were say, or Reddit where they were saying, oh, I lost my regular debit card for my bank. Asked for a new one. They said it would be about three days. So he actually went on and he applied for Revolut. He applied for, um, what was it? There's another bank in the UK. It's called like Mon... Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but there was these other startup banks and within about 15 minutes, he had an account all set up and ready. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I've been using one recently called Up, um, which is like the Australian version of these banks. Um, And you can essentially within about a minute and a half on your phone, you can have a bank account set up, ready to go with a contactless card integrated through Google Pay. um, And you just, you just go, it it all works Mm -hmm. through your app. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Incredible user experience, uh, startup company as well. They've got a roadmap. They've got like got an actual roadmap for their bank, 
Um, oh, you showed me that. Things. That was yeah. amazing. They got so many features that are on the way as well, and it's already great. Yeah. So we might actually chuck that in the show notes um, as well. That because if you're in Australia, I I can I, I can say from personal experience, I've been very very pleasantly presently surprised with them. But they're just a symptom of a larger trend, which is all these new banks starting up targeting. Um, uh, the younger crew, because up, for example, they just—I think they just hit a hundred thousand users, and that's yeah. that's that doesn't sound big for a lot of the world, but for Australia, that's big, considering they've only been around for about eight months, I think, too. Wow, yeah. Um, and the majority of their users are under thirty. Wow. Yeah. And and speaking of new banks, um, in Brazil, there's a there's a, a company called New Bank. Uh, they do banking and consumer credit. They've grown about two times in uh, in a year, uh, 9 million unique customers. Now, they're the largest purely digital bank, offer, uh, bank which offers financial services for Brazil, so no-fee credit cards, savings accounts, peer-to-peer money transfer, bill payment, debit cards, salary account, um, portability, rewards programs as well. Mm. Very highly personalized loans at um, pretty low rates. Wow. Um, so, yeah, they're all using data to make their banks powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like banking, traditional banking is being attacked from every corner, doesn't it, mate? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Grab, who are a ride-sharing um, application, they've added Grab Pay on top of their platform, giving access to financial services for millions in Southeast Asia. Which is so pretty that- wild. So, it's, but companies like Uber, they're just expanding their apps sort of uh, horizontally, mm. adding new little features in there, which is kind of crazy. Mm. Mm. So now we'll move into the social media section of the internet trends. And there's a number of positives and negatives uh, that, that are starting to be tracked through different metrics about people using social media. And one of the questions that was posed to the target audience was, do social media platforms you use make these health-related factors better or worse? And there's a number of different metrics which have run through there. So on the, the better and positive side of things from social media, it's good because you, know, you can do self-expression, self-identity. It's great for that, great for community building and emotional support from others and being aware of other people and different causes and things that are going on, which, which were seen as some of the big positives. Yeah, but some of the negatives they've they've said that depression, uh, they've seen they've had anxiety from social media. Um, it's had a, ne- a quite a negative effect on their body image and in the way of bullying. Even more negative effects though is the fear of missing out. And the last one was the sweet sleep quality and amount of sleep. So this was right across the board, almost to the very edge of more negative. Um, people are saying that social media is significantly affecting their sleep quality and the amount of sleep. Because it's, I reckon half of this is the infinite scrolling, um, infinite mm. scrolling features of this. You you can't get to the bottom of Facebook, you really can't. Mm. So the more you scroll, and and you don't want to, and that that it's tied in with that fear of missing out right above that, where you don't want to miss out on news, so you keep scrolling to see what's still there, and then yeah, people are losing out on sleep as a result. You know, I was looking at this and I was thinking, oh, this isn't me because I don't really use social media much. Um, LinkedIn's really the only thing I use. Semi-regularly, maybe a bit of Twitter, but um, not even that. But then I, I just realized that I, I have a Reddit app that's exactly like that. I can literally go to my front page. I've got a whole bunch of subreddits that I follow and I just scroll and scroll and scroll. And that's it's, I reckon I've lost sleep from that. Mm, it's crazy. It's mm. absolutely crazy. Um, 
Next was slide 164 was on social media usage. It's actually decelerating, um, so it's still growing, but they, it's 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 uh, the the rate of growth is really starting to cut off. Daily time on social media is actually it it's almost at 2.4 hours, um, but yeah, the the growth is is not nowhere near as fast as it was back in 2017, and yeah, it's been slowing in 2018 and 19. So they've hit the really hit, hitting the top of their. Um, adoption curve. Mm, mm. Yeah, right. Um, next bit too. Um, they've looking. They're looking at uh, the internet platforms, which are driving efforts to, as they call it, reduce problematic content. And they've particularly looked at Facebook and YouTube here, which are um, two of the the most infamous, I guess, for removing content, particularly in the last year. Mm. So all these censorship efforts, uh, you know, it creates a massive workload for Facebook and YouTube particularly. I mean, Facebook removed uh, probably about 60 or 70, uh, probably about 65 million pieces of content um, in the last year. And YouTube, um, yeah, almost, yeah, in, uh, in the first quarter of 2019, they removed, you know, maybe about 8 million pieces of content or you know, for violating guidelines and, um, and yeah, there's a lot of work that's required to do that. Mm, mm, mm. Particularly when removing something can result in a big dispute. Um, you just, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd hate to be them trying to find a balancing act um, mm. on their platforms. So there's some good news. Um, there's now more than 150 fact-checking organisations around the world. Yeah, so NPR and Washington Post are actually record, uh, reporting record-breaking readership of their fact-checking work. So it sounds like there's a, a lot more to come in those areas. Mm. There's also a number of um, algorithms that sit behind all these different platforms from Google to Twitter to Reddit, um, and they essentially allow people to really curate what they're taking in. And we're seeing this more and more emerge in social media and internet trends have been tracking it where people like to surround themselves with things that kind of agree with them, you know, share their viewpoints. And the internet in many ways, as, as it gets more personalized and as we have these applications to interpret the internet for us, it's becoming a lot more of an echo chamber for a lot and of people. And it's very personalized. I mean, Google, it takes your, all of your browsing and search history and they're personalizing your news based on that because they know that you're going to be more likely to read news articles about topics you're interested in than, you know, maybe something you're not so interested in. Apple, look at your reading history and they, they curate your news based on that. Twitter, look at your followed accounts, which is kind of interesting. Mm. Yeah, and even, even Reddit, um, Reddit will push you different content, um, based on your readership and you also obviously get to choose all your subreddits that you pull information in from. So yeah, you and can, you can very much get that confirmation bias happening the more mm. and more that you use it. And and this is quite dangerous, particularly. So this is, this whole section is on yeah algorithms that amplify users own patterns and echo chambers, but 43% of people get their news and news headlines from Facebook, which is crazy. Wow. So um, Facebook has really become like a, a publishing company. Absolutely. And the, the scary sort of thing is that this influences journalists because journalists are in their own little echo bubbles. Um, and, yeah, it, it, they've actually found that, that traditional media platforms um, amplify the trending topics on social media. Yeah, and you'll see this. When you, um, like when you, when you go and read media or news from a site that has very different readership to you um, and probably very different opinions to you, 
it's actually really jarring. Like it never used to happen a lot because new journalists used to have a bit more of a, uh, a uh, how would you put it, like a neutral style. But as this has happened, it's it's been in journalists' best interest to really cater to their audiences. And it's incredible going to some of these sites where, you know, you don't normally go to and just seeing the difference in the uh, the opinions and then realising as you go back to yours that there are these uh, biases built in mm. to cater to you. Mm. And it's amazing that, yeah, this influences journalists and what they write about. So, um, so yeah, when you'll hear things about, you know, different topics, you'll often find that, uh, content that's been on Reddit will will actually end up uh, in the news the next day. So, like journalists will just go on Reddit, find what's being talked about, find some interesting content, and then that's a massive clickbait headline the next day. I've even seen like usernames referenced now in some news articles, like from user um, u slash dog owns cat. Um, he had this to say on Reddit, you know. Um, that's actually happening increasingly because these journalists are, like you say, just sourcing things from Reddit and they're they're viewing some of these comments as almost like a this user had this to say instead of like interviewing the person on the street, mm. they're uh, interviewing the person on the Reddit thread. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there are some, you know, the, ne- the next piece goes on to the privacy concerns. They're actually increasing. So slide 166 covers this. More people are concerned about internet privacy versus a year ago. So of the respondents, 63%, interestingly, uh, also reported that their own government has contributed to their concerns regarding online privacy. Mm. Yeah, and pe- people around the world, this this is from uh, from Mark Zuckerberg, he said that people around the world have called for comprehensive privacy regulation in line with the European Union's GDPR, and I agree. Um, and that new regulation should protect your right to choose how your information is used while enabling companies to use information for safety purposes and to provide services. So that's coming from Mark Zuckerberg. And uh, that's a very, very different tone compared to his tone a few years ago with Facebook. Yeah. And that's as a response to these increased initiatives. And I mean, even GDPR, I mean, that, that came in from 2018. California's now ruled that's effective from 2020 in their jurisdiction. And I know... Uh, there's some legislation before Parliament here in Australia right now, which will bring us very, very close to the way that things operate with GDPR as well. So mm. it seems like regulators on one hand are making steps to to promote user privacy. If on the other hand, they're also bringing in things like the AA bill, which we've talked about before, which does mm. the direct opposite. So yeah, interesting trend to follow there. Interesting little follow-up from the privacy side of things. Encrypted and traffic in apps, their usage is is rising rapidly. 87% of web traffic is now encrypted. And um, we've seen that with uh, like a lot of people jumping on Telegram. Uh, WhatsApp is allegedly encrypted. Uh, but even some of the uh, the different apps that haven't traditionally have encrypted conversations um, – are now saying, oh, we're probably going to bring that in. You know, we want to bring that yeah. in for our users because people are looking for that more and more and more. And I mean, personally, I tell a lot of people, I'm like, you should jump on uh, Signal or if they want to go on Signal, you should jump on Telegram because at least there's some end- end-to-end encrypted there, encryption there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, interesting little little, little factlet there. Um, 86% yeah. is incredible though, isn't it, mate? Oh, that is, that's unreal. That's, it's wild. I think a lot of that actually came from Google, uh, interestingly enough, is um, uh, a couple of years ago, Google actually said to a lot of webmasters and people who ran web pages, they said, look, we're going to use HTTPS, uh, having the green bar or the padlock, sorry, the padlock on the, 
the left of the URL bar, they said that look, we're actually going to use that as a as a um, ranking factor. Mm. So you know, if you had two identical websites, um, except one of them has HTTPS, so it has that green padlock, um, that is actually more likely to outrank. It's going to rank outrank the other one. Mm, okay. And I feel dirty if I visit a site that doesn't have HTTPS now. Oh, mate, yeah. You know? <laughs> There's actually a great little um, little plugin you can get, by the way, that the Electronic Frontiers Foundation put out called HTTPS Everywhere. Yeah. So it, it, it forces every site to, to use HTTPS um, and lets you know if it, if it can't get it done. So, mm. yeah, definitely something to look at there. Um, there's one interesting trend which came up, um, and uh, we we saw this a little bit in the news we covered about Russia a little while ago, um, where we're seeing a split off into multi- multiple different regulated internets. So China's already done this; they've got their Great Firewall of China. Um, we recently saw Russia took the whole of the nation's internet down, so they could essentially put a almost like a, a wall in in front of their internet so that if they ever need to they can cut off the internet on their on their side and make mm. it completely internal mm-hmm. so a, a lot of this is potentially driven by local regulation so it may be that you know India have a national identity system that's being put in place now for to get online yeah China Chinese have this harmonious internet idea Europe might actually end up splitting off onto their thing so yeah, it's um, interestingly, the Brad Smith, who was the, the president and chief legal officer of Microsoft, said, look, we need a new generation of laws to govern this new generation of tech. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that this is all happening at the same time that uh, Musk is trying to get his satellite network up. There's some real leaps going on in mesh networking. Um, so it remains to be seen how successful this is actually going to be when there's a number of companies trying to make the internet even more global. Mm, mm. So we're going to have to really watch that. That's that's going to be an interesting, interesting one. Yeah, they had an interesting slide, 191, which was uh, going through the different regulations in different areas and on internet access, content regulation, and user regulation. Sort of showing how you know how free or uh, free from regulation or highly regulated these areas are. So yeah, check out slide 191 for that stuff. Mm. So next, there, there's a slide here um, around what they're calling an algorithmic bill of rights. Um, yeah. So this is an interesting one because, you know, when how do you know what Facebook is using to put certain pieces of content in front of you? So that, that actually yeah, raised this question. Are we going to have an algorithmic bill of rights so we sort of know what these algorithms are actually doing? Yeah, and they ran through a number of different, um, you know, ways that this could be formulated, but one was from uh, Sigal Samuel at Vox, and he said there are essentially 10 different elements that he thinks an algorithmic bill of rights should have. Number one is transparency, second is explanation, third is consent, fourth is freedom from bias, fifth is feedback mechanisms, the sixth is data portability, seventh is having the ability to have redress, um, eighth is having algorithmic late literacy, so actually knowing what's behind the algorithms. Nine is making sure there's independent oversight, and ten is making sure there's federal or global governance. Mm. So it's an interesting little little bit there. Um, mm. Wonder where we'll move in that way. You know, being able to whether Facebook will actually start opening up. You know, how are things being put in front of you? Mm. And maybe Libra is a first step in that if they do really want to make it truly open source. Maybe they are changing. Who knows? 
<laughs> yes, indeed. Um, there's a whole bunch of China slides that we aren't going to go into, but that they've really put together an interesting package on China in these internet trends. Yeah, um, there's there's a huge amount of stuff going on the economy, on trade, retail, internet, and phone usage, video consumption, and app trends in China specifically. Yeah, it's interesting seeing what they're doing, particularly in their popular apps, um, and also in math and code and other learning things through online gaming. So yeah, some really interesting apps that they're using. You know, teach children maths through games. Look, we give China a lot of a lot of curry, but like China, they're onto it in their own way, and they've really picked up. I think the fact that uh, children are learning through different methods to how they used to learn. And one of those big methods is gaming. And if you can help children learn through those online games and, you know, maybe encourage people to put some more useful tools in, in their gaming, then that's only going to be a positive thing. And it may be mm. a different way to engage with your, 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 your children uh, and help them learn. Mm. Next on to the cybersecurity side of things, cyber attacks, they've, they noted that there's been evolving sponsors uh, of cyber attacks, the different targets, different um, demands. So there's much more extortion happening now than ever and different mm. detection mechanisms. So state cyber attack sponsorship is on the rise as far as I was saying. Yeah, as far as vulnerabilities goes, there's far more than ever before, which is which is a continuing trend. Um, and there's more weaknesses as a result of more tech over time, more vulnerabilities discovered, and more devices susceptible. So we're not actually getting closer to having secure devices. The, the, the fact that we've got so much more tech out there is actually making things generally weaker. Yeah. And sensitive records are actually getting exposed more as well. So in 2018, more than twice as many records as in 2017 were exposed. So 447 million sensitive records are exposed in 2018 versus 198 million in 2017. So there's more data out there. Yeah, more ways of getting at it. Um, it's pretty scary stuff. Yeah, and look, if you're a cloud provider or you are putting your data in the cloud, you are becoming a real target. These people are figuring out that as data migrates to the cloud, if they can bust one part of that process open and get access to that data, um, there's potentially far more valuable stuff in there than there would have been 10 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I work for a, for a cybersecurity firm and, and um, yeah, we do a huge amount of stuff in cloud security and it's amazing how how little security people are putting in place. There's so much excitement about getting your business into the cloud and it's all, oh, it's in the cloud so people assume it's secure, but it really, really isn't. Mm. Um, there, are, there are lots of things, that you make, mistakes you can make. So, yeah, getting that right is important. Yeah, in, in that vein of security, um, it's it, one of the slides has said that two-factor authentication really isn't seeing enough adoption even now in 2019 when it's been around for a long time. Only about 52% of sites uh, globally are supporting two-factor authentication. So, you know, having the mobile app to confirm that you are logging in. Um, mm. But, yeah, there's, you know, if you're a business and you have any applications that are important, you know, whether it's your payroll apps or, your you know, your holiday and leave applications – you want to enable two-factor authentication wherever possible. It's it's a tiny extra step for your employees, but it keeps your business secure. Mm. So look into it uh, for any of the um, tools that you have, uh, any of the websites that you use. Mm. 
There's a number of other trends that the report has been tracking as well. Um, They've looked at which apps people would use the most, which was a very, very interesting one. We've actually seen that YouTube, out of of the main apps that people use, um, YouTube and Instagram have gained the most. Yeah, so we'll go from the top downwards on the most popular platforms that people go on. Facebook's number one, 30% of people use that at least one time, uh, more than once a day. YouTube, 27% of people use that more than once a day. Yeah, WhatsApp is at 25%, and that's up from 23% in uh, two years ago. WeChat, uh, which is mainly in China, is used by 23 is used 23% of the day. And Instagram in two years has gone up from 13% to 19%. Yeah, uh, Facebook Messenger, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and Twitch. Snapchat and Pinterest are pretty low in usage, and Twitch... Mm. Um, it's doubled over two years, but it's still pretty small uh, niche as far as people who use it more than once a day. But which yeah. is probably the one I use the most out of all that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I must be significantly contributing to the uh, the the two percent there of Twitch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, podcasts are interestingly on the rise. Um, there are about seventy million uh, monthly active listeners of podcasts, which is about two times growth in four years. Yeah, and the most downloaded Apple podcasts in 2018 were, uh, from top to bottom, The Daily from New York Times, The Joe Rogan Experience, uh, Stuff You Should Know, Fresh Air, The Dave Ramsey Show, My Favourite Murder, TED Talks Daily, Up First, The Ben Shapiro Show, and Pod Save America. Yeah, so interesting sort of stuff there. Great to see Joe up there at number two, mate. Oh, yeah, his podcast is great. Yeah. I am not a UFO fan at all, but he had this guy on the other day who was this one of these people who used to work at. Uh, he was actually the guy who first made Area 51 publicly sort of known about. Mm. He was on the Joe Rogan show the other day and talking about the work that he was doing. He was a physicist, um, so he says, um, working. And they basically, it really, really like either he's just a liar or what he's telling is absolutely terrifying. Right. Um, worked on these they basically had a he, from what he was saying they had a bunch of these random crafts um that were in these mountain layers and that it works off gravity propulsion and he was basically working in the physics team there absolute red pill like crazy stuff yeah. but he was a, you know if you want a fascinating listen that will really sort of provoke your thinking worth checking out um, and that's what's cool about joe rogan isn't it? he always seems to get these people on that um that just have the most zany things to talk about. Oh, mate, it was so crazy, man. But, yeah, really fascinating. Like, I've heard a few loony UFO people. This one was crazy. His name was Bob Lazar. Absolutely insane, man. (laughs) So, yeah, that was episode 1315 of the Joe Rogan Experience. Cool. Crazy. So another massive trend that we've been uh, that they've been tracking in the internet trends is the the trend of on demand um, digital consumption. So this has actually doubled in two years. Yeah, it's been absolutely wild. I mean, you look at like online marketplaces, transportation and housing, food delivery, health and beauty, and other stuff using a lot of these on demand. Um, uh, on-demand sort of products and services. Yeah, so there's 6.6 million on-demand workers in the US and 5% of the US workforce is now remote, which is up from 3% in 2000. Which is crazy. It's interesting looking at the motivations of these people as well. 47% of these um, of these on-demand workers were previously unemployed. 
Um, 29% wanted to do it to learn new skills. 27% was because they were, you know, they were underemployed. 24% just wanted flexible work hours. So that's a lot of your Uber drivers. Mm. 22% just wanted extra income. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and um, so some platform stats. Um, Uber has 4 million driver partners. Etsy has 2 million sellers. Airbnb has 6 million listings. Uh, Winolo, which is on-demand staffing, has 230,000 workers. And VIP Kid, which uh, where you can earn up to $22 an hour teaching English online, has 70,000 teachers and 600,000 students. That is crazy. Yeah, I think that's a Chinese platform, VIP Kid. But right, yeah, okay. you can earn money teaching English online. So it's not even having to go to another country this time around. You have a class of people who want to learn English and you just teach them. Wow. Wow. And yeah, we're seeing this in almost every facet of the community. I mean, I saw a couple of weeks ago, there is now a, um, like a freelancer site for law students mm-hmm. where law firms want to get a research task done and they essentially just, so law, they essentially just send a task out, number of law students can bid for it, get the job, and then they can make a bit of money while they're going through uni and the law firm can outsource their legal research so they don't have to spend a whole bunch of time and money for the client um, doing what essentially a lot of students are probably better equipped to do at the moment anyway. Mm, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, the internet's making a lot of this available. You know, you've got apps, communication stuff, platforms, you know, Skype, WebEx, Zoom, make a lot of this on-demand stuff and working from home and remotely easier. Mm. Um, and, yeah, interestingly, online education is growing whilst, you know, regular education costs are rocketing along with student debt. Online education is, is shooting. Yeah, and we've seen this with um, Coursera and Udemy and a whole bunch of other like online education marketplaces, and they really work on the economy of scale. So they're generally a lot cheaper than any other real world course. You can get courses on, you can get like a forty hour, fifty hour programming course for ten dollars. You know, wow. um, but they they're good courses and they just work because the platform offers it to everyone. So if you make a great course, you can sell it for not that much, but you you'll have a lot more people in your quote unquote classroom consuming your course than you would if you were just teaching it at a university or something yeah. similar. So slide two four three actually looks at the top Coursera courses. So in twenty eighteen the top courses were machine learning was number one. Uh, then the second one was actually learning how to learn powerful mental tools to master tough subjects. The next one, subject, uh, the science of well-being, uh, Bitcoin and crypto technologies, algorithms, part one, English for career development, financial markets, introduction to psychology. Uh, there's a Spanish course in there somewhere and Chinese for beginners. So, wow. Yeah. A couple of in- really interesting ones to see there, Bitcoin and crypto at number four. Mm. So there's a lot of interest in that. Um, and also Chinese for beginners. It seems like a lot of people are starting to think, well, maybe we should learn Chinese, mm. which, you know, is a, is kind of that underlying trend of China becoming more and more of a global player on the world stage. Mm. You can see the learners by geography as well. So 30% in North America, 28% in Asia, 20% in Europe, 11% in South America, and then 5% in Africa. So that's crazy. That's even, that's really cool that there's 5% in Africa too, isn't it? Like, it mm. means that probably a lot of people who don't get access to um, the type of learning resources they probably should can then just jump online and if, as long as they've got a computer, they can learn a whole bunch of things that they may mm. not have access to anywhere else. And I'd love to see how that grows when internet penetration grows in Africa as well. Yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, there are almost 40,000 instructors on Udemy and about 30 million students. Yeah, YouTube has got 4.5 billion annual hours of how-to video viewership as well. Yeah, and 200 million plus views on BookTuber content, which is, I believe that's like a YouTube YouTube for books. Right, okay. Um, and 60% of Gen Z users cite YouTube as their preferred learning tool as well. Mm. And yeah, so, so there, it's interesting to listen to see the top specializations on Coursera. Um, so they, they make 80% of their revenue um, as a course website from business tech and data science. Wow. Wow. And there's a number of different specializations on there, uh, deep learning, Python for everybody, data science, applied data science, advanced machine learning, business foundations, and architecting with Google Cloud Platform is just some of them. So there's a massive, massive push here to for people who are in those tech industries and business industries to build their skill base and supplement what they're already doing. Yeah. Interestingly, course completion rates, they vary. So um, the number of people who complete a course is nowhere near as high as, uh, high as when people go to university. And I reckon a bit of that is because of the sunk cost bias. You spent so much in university, so you want to get through it. Yep. Um, yep. It's, but- def- it's definitely a symptom, too, of the courses just being so cheap, too. They have sales all the time. I mean, mm. I've probably got 10 Udemy courses on my Udemy account. I think I've completed two of them, you know? So, <laughs> like, and, then, and and even then, those ones I've done over a significant period of time, I haven't really felt like I gave them the attention I probably should have, mm. um, but- when when you've got like a spring sale or the sales they have and it's 50% off and you're spending like $6 on a course, um, mm-hmm. you kind of think, well, I might as well get it. And if I use it, if I'll use it. If I don't, well, it's 6 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. So continuing this on-demand thing, it's worth looking at a couple of these interesting apps that are being used for on-demand stuff. So in Latin America, there's an app called Rappi, which digitizes delivery, um, had 8 million orders and that's gone up two times in four months. And it's basically a delivery service where the concept is digitizing deliveries so that, um, you know, when you order something, it could be delivered uh, in under 30 minutes. Mm, That's the concept behind it. Yeah, and we've seen that with uh, Uber Eats and a whole bunch of other platforms as well coming out for for delivery of food and delivery for different things. But, I mean, you look at these graphs and they've just had such high adoption um, you've seen that with uh, India as well, with Reliance Geo, which is essentially giving people offline access to e-commerce. Yeah, so they're sort of using, um, it's like hybrid online to offline. So integrating stores with their uh, their phys- like physical marketplaces with their digital infrastructure. So it brings together 350 million customer footfalls at their retail stores. And then they sort of connect people using... Um, uh, using you know, uh, you know text messaging and things like that, mm. um, which is pretty crazy. Sort of augment the offline experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like they focus a lot on that last mile between the the customers and the stores. Um, we mentioned Grab before. They're a rideshare driven digital payments uh, platform. They've gone four times in one year. Um, yeah. And and that's a part of that is because uh, only twenty seven percent of adults in South. East Asia have bank accounts. So they launched this Grab Pay on top of their ride-sharing platform, which meant that millions of users suddenly have access to financial services they couldn't have accessed via traditional banks and lenders. Mm. Just with a mobile phone. Yeah, it's incredible. So much is this happening from mobiles now, which is amazing. Mm. 
Um, gaming is also growing massively, which I don't think is a, a big news to anyone, but it's it's a little bit shocking as to exactly how much it is growing. Um, there's uh, the interactive gaming players is accelerating, accelerating. So it's at 2.4 billion people this year, um, which is up 6%. Versus 5% year on year. It's, a lot of this is driven by Fortnite, which has 250 million plus users. Uh, we chatted about a cons- uh, concert that happened on Fortnite in episode 38. There were 11 million plus people watching this concert within a game. Yeah. Um, Discord have got uh, 250 million users as well. And Discord's like a voice chat application. Uh, it's free. You can essentially just jump on, make your own chat server and chat away with your people. And like we said before, Twitch is at two times growth in two years. And, and Twitch are, in, are pretty incredible because they've only been around for about, uh, they were just on TV and then they became Twitch in, I think, 2012. So, so that's live stream gaming, isn't it? Yeah, live stream gaming. So it essentially means that if you've got a webcam and you've got a computer and you've got a decent CPU or graphics card, you can jump on and as long as you've got the upload to handle it, you can stream yourself doing whatever you want. So it's not just gaming. Um, True, yeah. You can be playing tabletop board games. You could just be sitting there in your room talking to your audience. And mm. um, they've essentially got a, uh, a subscriber program where you subscribe to the different people that are streaming. And some people are making like the equivalent of um, like $200,000 a month just streaming on Holy. Twitch. Um, they're just making an absolute killing because they're, it's it's a new viewership and it's generally people who are under 30. And a lot of like school-aged um, viewers can watch on Twitch for free, but they can also just give a little bit of money to these content creators to support them. Mm. Um, so, yeah, Twitch is amazing. Like it, it, by far the easiest streaming platform out there. It is just it, they've, they've built an incredible platform. Mm. Uh, as we segue into the next topic, there's an interesting idea of freemium. So with gaming, for example, on RuneScape, you may have seen this game back in the day. It was launched in 2001 and it was basically, it was a free game. Um, and initially the founder ran it on advertising, you know, so they'd make money from ads that were against the game. However, when the bot.com bubble began to collapse, they actually, advertising dried up. So they were struggling to pay to run the game, uh, the, according to the people who ran it. So that's, they actually launched this member subscription service. And the, so they had people paying every month to be able to get extra features. And the more they invested, um, you know, that money that they got from these members got invested back into the game. The more they invested, the more it grew. And now paid users actually represent almost 12% of RuneScape players. Mm, and this is something that you see nearly across the board. I mean, people are using it in different ways. So in gaming, a lot of the time now they're offering the game for three and free and then offering cosmetics and maybe a paid subscription for some extra features as well. But we've seen, as it often, as often happens, gaming goes first and then it gets mirrored in the corporate world. Mm. And we've seen this now with G Suite, which is a document um, system from Google, Zoom, who have video meetings, Spotify, and even Canva, which is image creation as well. Everyone seems to want to offer a small sample for free um, and then the more premium products uh, or the what product without ads or whatever it is mm-hmm. gets offered for a fee. Next big trend is making images or video. If you're a founder, this is – or if you're thinking of making a business idea, look at uh, try looking into making images or video easily with mobile apps and things like that because our brains are meant to perceive images. That's why mm. television is so popular compared to books. 
you know, because moving pictures are just, that's how it works. Yeah, people have always been visual um, and our brains are really wide for image. Writing was a real hack. It was like a detour for us as humans because we didn't really have the capability to use images in the way that we see them normally. But now we've got um, video capabilities and we've got easy access to a number of these tools. We're coming full circle where we can get quite easy access to, to genuine videos that people can watch. And, and why is this important? It's because, you know, images make ideas transportable. They simplify concepts. So you've infographics, you would have seen years, a few years back, infographics started leaping, but infographics is such a powerful way of getting information. So we, we started with pictures, we've come down to videos, um, and we've also seen this with text as well. Um, same kind of deal. So this is going to be a really, really good area for investment. Yeah, take it from me. It's like I design stuff in Photoshop and I also do a lot of like uh, animated video stuff for work um, and it takes a long time to create a lot of this stuff. You know, I even use templates to try and make things easier but we need better solutions for making, you know, flashy video that gets points across and, and powerful imagery without having to put so much effort in. So if you're a founder... Think about what you might be able to do in that area because smartphones are getting better, processing power is getting better, storage is getting better, Wi-Fi access is getting better. So it might be a good time to jump into that. Yeah, and AR and VR is coming. That's that's the other kind of crossover narrative with this is that the way we experience and take on artificial videos is just going to increase in fidelity. It's just going to increase in effectiveness. So uh, you really will have some incredible new ways to use this stuff in the not too distant mm. future. Yeah. And I mean, as far as image creation has been rocketing, you know, new photos taken annually is hitting, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's over a trillion photos are taken a year now. Um, wow. And image sharing is being driven a lot by things like Instagram, you know, and they've even got these creation tools built in. If you're an Instagram user, it's obvious to you, but you know, you can overlay text and rotate it and put little poles on top of images and things like that. Pretty powerful. So if you're a founder, there's some key takeaways for from from all of this. Yeah, so on slide 30, there's a really important key to marketing your products. A lot of founders aren't necessarily marketers, but the key they're saying for marketing is, it's a bit of a formula. So you say effective, efficient marketing is actually your product, how good it is, plus having happy customers, really happy customers, plus having them recommend it. Mm, and recommendations is really important because if you – and get someone to recommend you or your product, um, that gets them so much further over the line than they would just coming in cold. There's a huge power in referrals. Mm. We've talked about this a number of times on the show, particularly with crypto, but user experience is key to improving a product as well. So, yeah, asking users what they want, observing people carrying out tasks. Um, there's a great example I used of Intuit, which is uh, they're an accounting software company in America. I think they started in 1996, actually, uh, or in I th oh, it was in the 80s when they started. But they yeah, actually are they QuickBooks. Yeah, I believe yeah. so. Now yeah. Intuit, I think it was in 1996. They actually started sending their um, like actually getting people off the streets and asking them to complete tasks in their software. And they'd have the developers sitting right next to them watching as they're trying to do things because when you build something, you think, oh, it's obvious you just click this and then you click that and then it's mm. done. But with, when you watch you know, your grandma try and do a task that you ask her to do, she's, she's got a different approach to you. <laughs> yeah. 
And yeah, yeah, Intuit use this for massive success. They refine their product heavily based on watching users actually doing things, mm. made things so much more efficient and their growth as a result just rocketed. Yeah, that's incredible. So there's also a, a massive need in tools to uh, take on data and interpret data as well. Um, mm. So there's a range of uh, opportunities if you're a founder and making a, want to make a business in data plumbing, you know, in collecting data, understanding what people want, you know, uh, subscriber relationships, improving decision making, managing customer staff, managing connections. So actually connecting internal and external data, communicating with customers via different channels, organizing data across systems, and then optimizing data. So actually taking all that data that's there using it for stuff that's useful. So analytics, recommendations, personalizations, responding to big events at scale, um, like how Amazon do their personalized stuff and discovering business insights and optimizing processes as well. So there's a lot of opportunities. Go to slide 133 to see the different data plumbing opportunities that are there for founders. Mm, And so many founders are building very, very valuable businesses out of this. You really only need to carve down into one niche and work out where there is a need. And if you can build some great data collection and interpretation tools, particularly for enterprise, um, the opportunities are massive. Yeah. So, yeah, there was just an interesting little example that was being, that was given out of like HelloFresh, the the food company that delivers food to your door that you cook. They actually use bots in their social media internal company chat tool that bot actually drops them a message and says, hey, somebody just left a comment on Twitter or hey, somebody just wrote about you on Facebook or Pinterest or wherever. So then they can actually get those automated bots to monitor social media wherever it is and then they can respond in real time. Wow. So that's just a little example of using data, managing the customer relationship and managing their brand. There's also a massive um, opportunity in personalization as well. So um, retail customer satisfaction, according to slide 148, can rise with data and personalization. So when those two are combined and you make it not just a cold experience uh, just using data, but you actually personalize things for the customer, Mm. um, that will really, really help with customer perception. So, yeah, the survey of retail customers showed 91% prefer brands that provide personalized offers and recommendations. 83% of people are willing to passively share data in exchange for a personalized experience. And, yeah, uh, 74% are willing to actively share data to get a personalized experience. Which is very high. That's three quarters of people are willing to share that data if they get something personalized. So yeah, look, that's a, that's a broad brush view of the internet trends for 2019. Uh, like we said, we'll put the link in the show notes and definitely go have a look, uh, go have a look at the video presentation as well. It, th- this is one of the most comprehensive reviews of where things are at online um, that gets done every single year. Um, and we, yeah, we had an awesome time reading it. Awesome time talking about it. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on, Joe? From Nah, it's absolutely awesome set of slides. So lots of really cool stuff in there. So check out the slides, the, the graphs in there. Every slide is just a graph and data. Um, check it out. Yeah. So next week we will next episode we'll be probably back to our geopolitics um, series that we're doing. But we just thought it'd be worth detouring this week and uh, doing the feature on the the internet trends just because there was so much in there um, and it. It covers off on so many different areas, which we talk about every episode on the show. 
In our privacy and security section, um, we're going to cover a tool called Monitor by Firefox. Now, just a quick one. Uh, last time, the tool we shared, Unroll.me, was not really a great call from me uh, on a suggestion for the show on the privacy side of things. They wanted access to your Gmail, and um, yeah, uh, my apologies. That was a terrible recommendation. But it's okay because we've got Firefox Monitor, which is from not only a company that's probably one of the most trustworthy privacy companies um, in on the internet currently uh, who do a, do a lot with EFF and a number of other parties. But this tool is awesome because it will actually let you know if you've been part of an online data breach. So we've covered Have You Been Pwned before? Um, and Have You Been Pwned is like an open source um project which can essentially takes in a whole bunch of data from data breaches and you can run your email and see if your passwords or your emails have been compromised but it's not really active like you've got to go on physically and do it whereas here with Firefox Monitor you can actually just put in your email address uh, you can check for breaches like you can do with um, have I been pwned now uh, but it will also then have an option for you to basically say hey look if I have been breached in the future can you just let me know because the really important thing about that, of course, is that once you're, they let you know and you know that you've been breached, you can go straight into that account and change the password and change yeah. the passwords. So I plugged my email in and it immediately said, look, your email has appeared in five known data breaches. So uh, Discus, Bitly, Dropbox, LinkedIn and Yahoo, uh, all at different times, but um, lets you know what was compromised. Yeah, so we'll put the link in the show notes. It's just monitor.firefox.com. Great little tool. I'd recommend for any email you use um, semi-regularly, just whack it in and just say to Firefox, hey, look, if this pops up anywhere, can you just swing me an email so I know? Yeah. So we've um, we've had Jordan Cronier, our intrepid uh, FOMO show reporter, um, who seems to be all around the world these days. He's got in touch with us again, and he's really excited about a new project that he's working on. So he wanted to give us a quick call, have a bit of a discussion about it, and just update us as to where he's at. So let's give him a call. Hey, Jordan, have we got you? Oh, yes, 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 you have. Uh, Matt, how's it going, huh? Oh, it's good, Jordan. Things are going well. How, how are things with you? Brew, I'm in America. I've, you know, I'm see, I've, I've been to the big cities. I've done some tourism, but I've actually, uh, I've, I've recently been in California, right? Right. Okay. So, uh, over in San Francisco, Jordan, or LA? Oh, San Francisco, huh? Oh, okay. So, Silicon Valley, probably, it sounds like. What, what have you been doing over there? Well, I've actually been working with the uh, the Californian Gymnastics Academy. I've actually, I'm on an assignment from Facebook. I'm actually contracting for them, working with their Libra team on this cryptocurrency. I'm actually working with the Californian Gymnastics Academy to actually uh, work out how to keep the Libra stable when balanced on, you know, an Olympic standard balancing beam. Huh? Uh uh, okay, Jordan. So you're you're part of Libra, which is Facebook's new cryptocurrency or alleged cryptocurrency, um, and they've said that that'll be a stable coin pegged to a reserve. Where does the Californian Gymnastics Academy come in? Oh, look, you know, to keep it stable, you've got to keep it balanced. You know, there's a lot of moving parts involved. So you know, they they, they figured they'd bring in an expert, huh? Right. Okay. And so so. Did, did, who did you get this assignment from? I mean, was this was this Zuckerberg? Did you go directly yes, to the top? Yes, absolutely. Look, I got it right from the top. Uh, Zuckerberg reached out to me. Um, he he, uh, 
he, he saw my work with Zimbabwe coin and coconut coin and uh, working with Venezuelan government as well. You know, he, he just, you know, he wanted a hand and he wanted an expert. So that's what they got me on board. Huh? Right. Okay. So you've, you've met Zuckerberg then. Are you, do you know him? What's, what's, what's the deal there, Jordan? Look, um, oh, well, I know him now, you know, first name terms, but he's, you know, oh, I thought it was a bit weird. He's much smaller than I thought he'd be. He's like a Tom Cruise. He's very short. Huh? Uh, he's only about five foot six. Huh? So you have to look down on him when he, when he walks around, but, um, much smaller than I thought he'd be, but yes, he, he asked me personally to solve the stablecoin concept. Huh? So um, interestingly, I, I actually uh, introduced him uh, to, to some of my contacts. Um, he was very impressive. I introduced him to the, uh, the Venezuelan economy minister, showing them how to you know keep a stable and balanced coin. Huh? Right. Okay. So once once you sort this stable coin out then Jordan what happens after that like are you are you going to be a long-term part of the the Libra project or is this just a one-off assignment mate it's 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 more of a contract job but you know they're very impressed with my work you know I'm a bit of a you know I've I'm not a new face to crypto I've been around here for a few years as you know and your listeners know so no I'm just working on this just giving them a bit of a help and then uh, leave them to it and then the success they'll probably claim as their own as, as as everybody else seems to as well Right, Jordan. Now, look, last time we left you, I, I just want to circle back around. Um, you were in Djibouti, um, and it sounded like things were going south there. What, what happened? How did you get out? Oh, look, bro, you know, it's right by the water, but, you know, it, things kicked off there a little bit. Uh, it's a bit, of a, a bit of a hot area around there. There's a lot of military, a lot of, uh, a lot of geopolitics in that area. So, you know, I'm just straying well away from there for the time being, and I recommend your listeners don't get on a boat and go anywhere near Dubuti anytime sooner. Okay. Well, John, look, we wish you all the very best with uh, Californian Gymnastics Academy. Now, look, oh, thank you, uh, we have been waiting on a number of articles from you, Jordan. So I'm ju- just wondering, like, when, when can we expect them for the website? Because it's, it's looking pretty bare. Oh, brilliant. Like, honestly, uh, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a lot going on at the moment. The time difference is pretty, pretty difficult. So I've actually, you know, I actually should have been asleep two minutes ago, but I'll, I'll catch you soon, huh? Okay, Jordan. See you later. Hey, that man is useless. <sighs> well, I mean, I, I guess maybe we'll see what happen, comes out of his uh, work with the Gymnastics Academy, but I wonder whether he's had his lines crossed there somewhere. Uh, yeah, I'm sure he knows what he's doing somehow. Well, no, he doesn't really. Um, he always seems to find his way through these situations. So, yeah, no doubt. Um, Libra will be a, a roaring success. Yeah. Know someone who might enjoy this? Please feel free to share it with them. You can find us at FOMO.show. You can jump on our telegram at FOMO.show slash telegram. Follow us on Twitter at the underscore FOMO underscore show. And on YouTube at FOMO.show slash YouTube. That's it for us here at the FOMO Show. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like our show, please do feel free to subscribe to your podcast app of choice or via our YouTube channel. I'm Matt. And I'm Joe. And as always, remember, no FOMO. What have I been up to?
Crap, what have I been up to? I feel like I've been up to much. Just, just being a dad. Just being a dad, slaving away. Standard procedure. Working. Yeah. Working to put food on the table. Yeah, boy. Lobster's getting expensive these days. <laughs> yeah. I had to cut down my caviar intake. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, Woolies value caviar. <laughs> Aldi, Aldi caviar. That's when you know you're struggling, isn't it? <laughs> uh, in our privacy and security segment, we're going to be talking about Facebook Monitor, which is a great new way to keep track of whether any of your details have been breached on the internet. Mate, do you want to just record that one more time and just say Firefox? You said Facebook. Did I really? Oh, mate, slip of the tongue. <laughs> Facebook. Can you imagine a Facebook monitor? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you got your coffee? I do. I'm sipping on Fantastic. it. Fantastic. Mm. Mm. Sweet instant coffee. Oh, mate. Wonderful <laughs> stuff. Wonderful stuff. Nescafe <laughs> blend. Yeah. Blend 43 or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm not becoming a coffee snob. Fantastic episode. Yeah, that was good. That made those internet trends are so cool. Oh boy.